Hello, and welcome to the Christ Church Cathedral Podcast. This is the sermon from our past Sunday, recorded live from the cathedral. We hope these words will really speak to your heart and mind. May I preach in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today we are faced with one of Jesus' more puzzling parables, at least on the surface. The Jesus Seminar, an ecumenical project of Bible scholars, committed to trying to discern which of the words of Jesus were most likely actually said by him, and which were more shaped by the Gospel writers, argues that the first eight and a half verses were a genuine parable of Jesus, ending with the punchline, so to speak, and the Master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, full stop. Anything after that, they argue, was a Lucan interpretation for the readers and listeners of his community. However, before we go on, since this is the season of creation, let us add a little bit of creation-related context. Jesus, as a rabbi in training, would have learned of God's creation of the world in Genesis, with the divine words at the end of each day, and God saw that it was good. He would have been aware of the Psalms and their celebration of creation and their distrust of the dishonest and corrupt exploitation of it at the expense of the poor. Jesus would have been aware of the importance of Sabbath and Jubilee, in which humanity and creation are given a rest from exploitation. Debts are forgiven and a new beginning is possible. He would have been aware of Job's assertion amidst his suffering and his innocence regarding his treatment of the land. Job cries out, If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and caused the death of its owners, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. Likewise, Jesus would have been aware of creation around him and its precariousness, subject to drought, earthquakes, and floods. Yet he also recognized its beauty as an appreciation of the lilies of the field. As a young carpenter, he and Joseph would have been concerned about where they were to find their timber. In biblical times, survival alone required some sort of positive and constructive relation with nature and creation, including conservation and wise use. In this context, rich landowners or merchants were very ambiguous, if not problematic figures, certainly not capitalist heroes, and were subject to Jesus' scrutiny, as in this parable. Think of how many of the stories begin, and a rich man asked Jesus, or a rich man said, and then Jesus turns the table on the rich man. So into this context comes our poor estate manager. A rumor has gone around that he is mismanaging the rich merchant's funds. The rumor has finally reached his employer, and he instantly believes it. He calls the estate manager in, fires him, and demands to see the accounts. Here is the first injustice. We do not really know if the estate manager was guilty or not. 
he is not given a chance to defend himself or plead his innocence. Already he has a case for wrongful dismissal under Ontario law, but that was not quite how matters worked out in Jesus' time. Estate managers had a low social status. They were often slaves. Though our estate manager was a free man, as he now had to face life without a job. He did not have enough social clout to challenge his rich employer's decision, and he accepted his firing, right or wrong. However, he has good relations with his customers who had been buying provisions from him. Some commentators suggest that the customers were the estate manager's fellow villagers, already his friends and relatives, and not complete strangers. Strikingly, the debts were not for luxury items, but for basic staples, olive oil and wheat, components of bread, and in huge quantities, suggesting that the customers were not having an easy time financially. Perhaps there was a draft, drought, or times were very hard. Jesus' sympathy would have been with these indebted customers, not the rich merchant. So the shrewd estate manager has a very clever idea. It turns out that he knows the books very well. He is not incompetent, so he discounts the invoices. Since he is being fired without recourse, and his rich employer has not required repayment, he has nothing to lose. His employer has not learned 21st century management advice. If you're going to fire somebody, do it on a Friday, and don't let them take the company records home with them. The estate manager offers the poor customers a jubilee from their debts, at the same time becoming their friend and benefactor. The bill for 100 jugs of olive oil is reduced by half. The bill for 100 containers of wheat reduced to 80. These are large amounts and do represent a debt jubilee for the customers and their families. There must have been great celebration. The rich merchant discovers what has happened and realizes he has been outwitted by the estate manager, but cannot admire, but admire his cleverness. Since the estate manager had authority and used it definitively, the rich merchant could not go back and resubmit the proper invoices. That would be mean and petty, and they could probably absorb the loss anyway. Indeed, the estate manager increased the rich merchant's prestige among his customers as not just rich, but generous. The whole parable ended here. It becomes of a kind of a three-way win-win-win situation. The indebted customers gain a jubilee from their debts. The estate manager has exercised generosity and gained friends who will help him survive without a job. And even the rich merchant has gained prestige and admiration despite his loss. And perhaps this even had a kind of conversion experience. Rather than being angry and, so to speak, calling in the police or taking the estate manager to court, he expresses admiration because the estate manager has acted shrewdly. Some commentators suggest that this parable is nearest to Jesus' teaching about the turning of the other cheek. Perhaps you're probably cheated by his estate manager. The rich merchant turns his other cheek and accepts it, thus forwarding the reign of God in the process. 
ended here, the parable suggests that we are called to be contextually shrewd for the sake of the reign of God, to accept reality, whatever it is, make the most of it for the sake of the reign of God. If we are in the situation of the rich merchant, perhaps we need to learn that our wealth and the accumulation of wealth is not something to be idolized and that we can afford to share. If we find ourselves in a mess of some sort or another, like the estate manager, whether of our own doing or another's, we can use our shrewdness to make the best of the situation, not just for ourselves, but for others as well, that is, for the reign of God. And if we relate with the indebted ones in this story, we can work and hope for jubilee that church and society will operate with generosity and forgiveness rather than selfishness and greed. It puzzles me, and I hope you, to see people who claim they are Christians questioning, for example, student debt forgiveness. Have they never heard of Jubilee in Leviticus? Rest for the land, property returned to its original owners, forgiveness of debts. But to say a few words about the rest of the gospel passage, I believe a good argument can be made that what follows is very much Luke's interpretation of Jesus' parable for his urban Gentile hearers, who, unfamiliar with the Jewish context of Sabbath and Jubilee, would have immediately related with the rich merchant and regarded the estate manager as a criminal deserving of punishment. Likely, Luke has used Jesus's from other situations, Jesus's words from other situations and context. The second half of verse eight, the children of this age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light, is an aphorism used elsewhere in scripture and in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It in effect criminalizes the parable, seeing the rich merchants and the estate manager's actions as just a part of the world of darkness. Although Luke still commends shrewdness for the children of light, presumably us. But the next verse, make friends with mammon or dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, you may be welcomed into the eternal homes, does not make a lot of sense. There are variants in the early Greek text that suggest that the Greek may be corrupt. Perhaps the best one can say is that somehow shrewdness regarding corrupt wealth will incorporate us into God's final reign. Likewise, a concluding verses go off to another theme, that of honesty and dishonesty, which in a sense further criminalizes the estate manager, whom Jesus has already praised for being shrewd. And then the passage moves uh, to the declaration of Jesus that no slave can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now that may well be, but the parable is about someone who managed to use mammon to serve God cleverly outwitting the system. The parable is much more in the spirit of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. People complained to him that he accepted, that he accepted donations from wealthy capitalists whose factories were creating many of the problems the Salvation Army was trying to address. Booth replied, I'd accept money from the devil himself if it were for the Lord's work. The operative word in the parable is shrewd. The Greek phronomos, a very positive word, connoting thoughtfulness, discretion, 
intelligence, acumen. Perhaps we might say clever wisdom. In the parable, it is shrewdness amidst moral ambiguity, making the best of a difficult situation. Thinking about this word this week, very many of the obituaries of our late queen mentioned her shrewdness, linked with the many other virtues, such as compassion, faithfulness, and kindness. And shrewd she had to be, given the horrific history of British imperialism, right down to our Indian residential schools, the enormous wealth of the royal family, and the variety of political leaders she had to deal with, all the time constrained as a constitutional monarch and a national public figure, always subject to a potentially hostile media. Her Christian shrewdness bore fruit, quietly supporting the good and eschewing evil. And King Charles wanted to employ such shrewdness. And one hopes that the anointing at his coronation may convey that gift of the spirit, shrewd wisdom. But what of us simpler folk? In whatever situation we find ourselves, and everyone's situation in history is very different, we can exercise shrewdness for the reign and love of God, for family, friends, church, country, world creation, and indeed those we deem our enemies even. We can step back, retreat in quiet thought, and reflect on how we are living our lives, how we are dealing with success or failure, tragedy or joy, stability or transition, being young or getting old, and how we might be just a bit shrewder for the benefit of all and the reign of God. God has given us the resources to do so, and in Paul's words in Philippians, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And another parable reminds us that we are to be like the householder who brings out treasures, both old and new, from the storeroom. God gives us the resources to be shrewd for the reign of God. We need only the commitment and the energy to exercise them, both as individuals and a community. And even if we try and fail, God's greater grace will always prevail, and we may be surprised by the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Christ Church Cathedral. Audio editing and original theme by Eduardo Farias. We hope you join us again soon. Have a blessed day.